0: take your Bible and go to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, you're probably already there, and uh, you have your outline. You're going to want to have your outline near you for our study. I'm going to preach on the majesty of God, the dignity of man, and the tragedy of transgenderism. Fox News today, did you guys see this article? Transgenderism for Toddlers. Fox News. I didn't even click on it and read it, but it's just, it's so pervasive. So what we're looking at today could not be more relevant. Of course, God's Word is always relevant, uh, but my introduction in particular, uh, my prayer is that it'll be helpful for us as a church family. So let's pray. Father, now we come to your Word. Thank you for the powerful, the life-changing the heart-transforming power of the Word of God. You show us our sin, and you show us the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of Christ, our righteousness. That through turning away from our self-love and our self-confidence and repenting of all of that, following Christ, trusting in Him, relying on Him alone, we have eternal life. What a great gospel message. Lord, we pray that you would teach us as we study your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Tragically, this is affecting every level of our society. It's called, it's an ideology, it's called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. That is an ideology that holds To the fact that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core. That the purpose of life is allowing your core, that is who you perceive yourself to be, who you want to be, it's allowing your core to express itself however it wants. And anything that would ever challenge that is deemed oppressive. 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 One of the ways that we see expressive individualism coming so clearly with the tidal wave of our culture right before our eyes is in the transgenderism movement. I haven't talked about this probably enough from the pulpit, and so I want to do that even here in my introduction here the transgenderism movement. By the way, a trans person is a person whose sense of personal identity, their gender, does not correspond with the sex that they were assigned at birth, biologically. Transgenderism, we all need to hear this. We all need to be crystal clear on this. Transgenderism is a satanic lie. It is a foothold in our culture. It is just another proof that God has given our nation over to a debased mind. Transgenderism is from hell. It is a lie from the pit and from the mouth of Satan himself. I want to be clear. Listen carefully to this. I absolutely hate transgenderism. I love sinners and you love sinners that are caught in the web of lies and pride and deception and sin. But as a movement, we absolutely hate the transgenderism movement. And we need to be clear. We need to understand this without any equivocation. No one can ever really, truly change genders. There is an X and a Y chromosome. They are called sex chromosomes. Females have two X chromosomes. Males have one X and one Y chromosome. Somebody now could try to alter their body physically. They could try to alter body parts surgically, medically, through pills, prescriptions, hormone treatments, whatever. But no one can ever change the innermost part of who they really are at the core of their DNA. No one can ever ever do that. And God, God gives clarity, crystal clarity. I, I only give you three verses in your outline. There's so many more. Genesis 1, God created them male and female. Later on, Genesis 5, 2, he made them male and female and he blessed them. And then, lest we think, well, Jesus had a different perspective. No, Mark 10, verse 6, from the very beginning of creation, God made them male and female. As I've thought on this, as I've seen our culture, as I see what's out there, and you probably do even more than I do, we see what's out there. We see what's being assaulted we see what's being fronted before our eyes the the tidal wave from every level of society even the youngest kids in the school system we need to understand transgenderism is absolutely infatuated with self quite simply transgenderism is the worship of self in your outline i want you to follow with me at these bullet points or maybe there are stars in your outline Number one, transgenderism is rooted in pride. We have to begin there. It's rooted in pride, and here's what it says. Look at me. Then, transgenderism is expressed in self-worship. Here's what I must have for myself. I must have it, I will have it, and I demand it in order to be happy. Third, transgenderism is evidence of discontentment you know, I'm not happy with how God made me. And I need this in order to be fulfilled or be who I really am. Fourth, transgenderism is blasphemous of God's creative genius. Transgenderism is quite honestly pointing the finger at God saying, God, you made a mistake. And transgenderism finally Feeds the lie of autonomy. It feeds the lie of autonomy. I am my own law. There is no higher authority than me. And what I say about myself and who I want to be is the ultimate authority. And you and no one, not even God, can tell me otherwise. Transgenderism is satanic. It is satanic. And we need to be very simple. We need to be very clear. I want to give you timeless axioms and truths. In your outline, you see it here. Number one, you are born male or female. Let's just kind of start there. You're born male or female. And boys and girls, you need to hear this as well, because men cannot become women, and women cannot become men. And we need to hear this. The trans will not inherit the kingdom of God. The trans movement, we saw it today on one of the headlines, it's everywhere. It was at the Brentwood Library last year with the drag queen shows. The trans movement wants to devour your children, your grandchildren. Absolutely devour them. We need to hear that marriage is only between one man and one woman. That is the beautiful design of God in the Bible. And only Jesus Christ. Here's the beautiful hope. Only Jesus can forgive sin and give you a new heart. Praise God for that. He can do that life-transforming, soul-transforming work. So again, we kind of come back to it. Transgenderism is overly infatuated with self. And God has a very different goal. What we're going to learn tonight in Psalm 8 is the exact opposite of what the transgenderism movement proclaims. You see, the goal of God for the dignity of man is to rule over the works that God has made, to have dominion and to care for God's creation and to rule and guide and lead and make decisions as the image bearers of God so that we would worship God, not worship self. The simple lesson for a transgender child, relative, friend, co-worker, neighbor, stranger, what's the message? Stop worshiping yourself. Be awed by God, your maker, and worship him. We, we are swimming in this culture of not only confusion, it's a culture of rebellion brazen rebellion against God. And again, let's say it, transgenderism offers no hope. No hope at all. God has a better way. God has a much better way. And here's the better way, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is going to teach that man is at his highest when man is absolutely awed by the majesty of God. Man is not at his highest when he's awed by the dignity of self. And the majesty of self. No, no, no. God teaches that we ought to be awed by his majesty. And awed by the intricate design of man. And the profound responsibility that God has given to us. And we ought to turn and worship. And be in awe of the great handiwork of our God. Psalm 8. Psalm 8 teaches the great role of man, and the great power and splendor of God. Follow with me as I read Psalm 8, and then we'll look at it together. Psalm 8, from the title, it is a psalm of David. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you take care or that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the conclusion of that psalm, which is the heading of Psalm nine, but it's kind of the conclusion here for the choir director on the title of the song or the melody would be Mut Labain in Hebrew. David wrote this. He was the king of Israel. And he wrote it as a song. It was a song that was meant to be sung, probably as a shepherd boy, remembering when he was in the Judean hills, looking up in the, in the beautiful sky and seeing all the stars and the, and the fingerprints of God through all the ways that God made the sun and moon and the stars in these beautiful, beautiful acts of his creation. It's for the choir director, and there's a melody, moot la bane, maybe a somber, a thoughtful, a minor key, a minor tone for this reflective song. My goal tonight is to leave the transgenderism aside. We want to be awed by the glory of God. We want to be awed by the bigness of God. And so let's do that together. Number one in your outline, be awed by the majesty of God. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. You thought about creation in this way before? That all creation is the theater for the glory of God. All creation is the theater for the glory of God. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Two different titles for God there. Jehovah is the first Lord, and the second Lord is Adonai, the mighty, powerful, the king. He is majestic in all the earth. I love this Hebrew word, majestic. We could write pages and pages on this Hebrew word. It means that God has a royal attribute of majesty that denotes his kingly victories. God is the victor. He's the king. He'll never lose. It means that God is mighty in judgment, that God rules over all creation, that he is mighty and royal and sovereign and all of his works are on display so that we behold God and then we are to respond to God and we worship him. We worship him. Not because He's like us, But he is so lofty and unlike us in his sovereign dignity. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, your character, your being and all the earth. Displayed your splendor even above the heavens. More on that in a little bit. Look at verse 2. Look at how how David is awed and overwhelmed by the majesty of God. Verse 2, from the mouth of infants and nursing babies, God, you have established strength. What does that mean? Well, it, it means that God shows his power even through the weak, even through the small who ascribe praise and honor. And glory to him. Now, a couple of examples to to make this very clear. Remember how God uses the weakness of little ones to reveal his strength. Remember when Jesus was riding on a donkey in the triumphal entry, and and there were the boys and the girls that were crying out, Hosanna, and all the, the Jewish leaders were indignant and they said, Jesus, you need to quiet these young kids. Jesus quoted Psalm 8 Haven't you read? Out of the mouth of children and nursing babies, God has ordained strength from even the weak ones. God receives glory through their worship. I also think of how God even uses the young, the weak to defeat God's enemies and foes like David in 1 Samuel chapter 17, going up against the massive and mighty Goliath. And here's a young little boy, David. He's a little shepherd boy. He's not a warrior. And yet God used a weak shepherd boy to silence the foe and the avenger. You know, if God can use the weak children and a small shepherd boy Surely God cares for and can use people like me and you as well. He certainly can. Oh, the glory of God is above the heavens. The glory of God is even seen from the mouths of babes and infants. And yet by both, the name of God is made excellent in the heavens and by the young children. How excellent is the name of God? Marvel at the majesty of God. But not only should we marvel at the majesty of God, the psalm, and you see it in your Bible there, look at verses three to eight, the bulk, the middle section of the psalm teaches us in your outline number two, be awed by the dignity of man. If you have a friend or know anybody who's suicidal, here's a great scripture to take them to somebody who's caught up in the transgenderism movement, they need to hear truth. Truth about the bigness of God and truth about the dignity of man. Man is not insignificant. Man is not worthless. Man is dignified and made by God. This meditation of God in these verses here and the greatness of God, it ought to bring great humiliation to us. It should show us the greatness of God and the intricacy of man as we are made by the handiwork of God. Again, man is not purposeless. Man is not worthless. Man is not aimless look in your outline, man first is created by God's wise power. Look at verse three. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. Very simple teaching right here. God made everything. Verse four. What is man? What is man? I mean, God, you made the heavens, you made the, you made the moon, you made the stars, you've ordained it all. It's the work of your fingers. I love the Hebrew expression of the invisible God creating with his fingers. Why? It shows the sensitive, skillful, meticulous care of God in creating all things. Fingers are at work. Care, skill, meticulous love, and fashion. I mean, ponder with me. There is no place where God is not. We could go to the silent valleys and they shout the beauty of God. We could look at the pine trees and they display the power of God in the highest mountains. We could go to the quiet and undisturbed sand on the ocean floor and behold, God is even there. The, the, the presence of God is everywhere from the highest mountain to the highest clouds to the furthest planet to all of the galaxies. Everything shows the fingerprint of God. And here's what's so cool. When you compare God's splendor and his majesty to all the heavens that he made, the heavens are pretty tiny compared to God. But in contrast to all of the galaxies, you and I are pretty tiny. God is bigger than the galaxies, and the galaxies are a lot bigger than us, and yet God cares about us. God cares about us. We are created by God. He made all things by his fingers. And the reality of verse 3 leads to the mind-boggling thought of verse 4. Look at verse 4 in your Bible. This is the next point in your outline. Man is not only created, man is cared for. Maybe... You've been at the Grand Canyon or you've been high up on a mountain or you've been at a camp somewhere and you've seen the the Milky Way or you've seen the beautiful creation of God and and you feel small and insignificant when you're beholding the bigness of the creation of God. We've all been there. That's a good thing because verse 4, David said that. What is man? What is man that you take thought of him? I love that Hebrew expression, taking thought. You know what it means in Hebrew? To dwell on something in compassionate care. It's the image of a father who's thinking about a son who's moved away. And the father, it's not just a heartless thought. He loves. He's compassionate for his own beloved son. That's the idea here of this word, that God takes thought, that God would take thought of me. And what is the son of man that you care? The second verb, to care for him, to visit him, means that God's thought of man sparks a longing for man. A longing for him. I want to care for him. I want to be with him. Could you imagine that God would actually have a longing to want to be with us? He would have a longing to want to fellowship with us. And on top of all of that, check this out. The two Hebrew words for man here in verse 4 are quite picturesque. The first word for man... Speaks of that which is weak and frail and fragile. What is fragile man? Fragile man, weak. And then the second word in verse four and the son of man, it's the word that means the dust creature. I'm from the dust. How would God care for me? And why would God care for me? God, you're so big and I'm so small. Why me? It's good to be overwhelmed by your insignificance. Not worthlessness, but insignificance. God, you you made the heavens with the work of your fingers. The moon and the stars which you have put in place what what am I a fragile breakable man and a dust-like creature that you would care for me that you would long for me that you would have thoughts of compassion toward me Oh man is cared for by God Man is cared for this is a great scripture to go to if you know somebody who feels suicidal, hopeless, down and out like no one cares. God does. God does. What an open door to the gospel right there. But not only is man created by God, verse 3, man is cared for by God, verse 4. Look in your outline. Now verse 5, man is crowned with Not only dignity, highest dignity. Now, verse 5. Yet you, verse 5, have made him, man, a little lower than God. Maybe you have the angels. Maybe you have heavenly beings in your translation. The Hebrew is God. The English translators are trying to figure out what that means. You made man a little lower than God? What does that mean? It means that God has bestowed the highest possible honor on an earthly creature by creating human beings a little less than himself. A little lower than himself. God is not created. Of course not. He created us. As the highest created order, highest one on my PhD um, exams when I was all finished with my work, I was asked about life on other planets. So I never thought about that. How am I supposed to answer that? Well, they took me to Psalm 8 and they made the argument that man is the highest of God's creatures, making the point that there is no more other intelligent life on other planets If we are the highest of God's creation, what dignity, what honor, what privilege. I mean, this is amazingly, mind-blowingly lofty. God made us a little lower than God. That's what the text says. I don't know if I can explain all the ins and outs of it, but that's what it says. Angels. Fell. God didn't give them a redeemer. Men fell. God did provide a redeemer. Crowned with highest dignity. What a God. And then in verses six to eight, man is now commissioned with with, with this amazing responsibility. Now, in verses 6 to 8, you made him to rule over the works of your hands. David is intentionally using language from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, that God made man in his image, and we are to rule over the works of God. David is quoting that because David wants us to know that we have a great commission. And guess what? Your commission is not to live for yourself. Contrast transgenderism movement. Your commission and responsibility is to live for God and to fulfill the commission of God that you are not to lose sight of who you are made by God and to rule over the works of God. I sometimes wonder, why is our world in the absolute confusion that it is? Well... If you lose sight of who you are made in the image of God, and of course with that you lose sight of who God is in all of his glory and majesty. So if you lose sight of God and his majesty, and you lose sight of yourself and your dignity to serve and honor and worship him, then the world will inevitably go insane. That's our world. Everything falls apart. When we lose sight of God and we have a misunderstanding of self, everything falls apart. And isn't this so beautiful that, that you are created by God and you are created for God and you, you're even cared for by God? And you fulfill your mission in this world by bearing God's image in his creation. Not for self-fulfillment and self-aggrandizement and self-expression, but you fulfill your greatest mission, the loftiest mission, in living for God and his glory. We are made by God in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. And yet man has turned his back on God and says, no, I prefer my expressive individualism. I don't want God's plan for me. This is why in Hebrews chapter two, in Hebrews chapter two, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 to show that Jesus came as a real man in order to live a perfect life to redeem men. It's an amazing chapter in Hebrews 2 that man has rebelled against God and yet Even though we don't see everything subject to men now, amazingly, God sent his son in the likeness of human flesh to redeem sinful people. And not only Hebrews 2. Well, then you turn to 1 Corinthians 15. What a glorious chapter on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27, Paul quotes Psalm 8 to show... That one day, God will put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. All things. The complete subjection of all of the universe to King Jesus. You and I don't see that now. There's a lot of rebellion now. But one day, according to the promise of 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-seven. All the universe will be in subjection to Jesus. What what a a psalm. Oh, it it shows the glory of God, the dignity of man. It, It points us to Jesus as the ultimate man who would, in fact, rule over all of God's creation. So, man's purpose. Man's purpose is not in his expressive individualism. No, man's purpose rather is found in rightly understanding such a dignified role, the intricate design of God and the, and the being of God, and that we would be swept up in awe of God's amazing handiwork. We ought to be awed by the majesty of God and by the dignity of man. And then David, as a great psalmist, he ends where he began. In your outline, this is point three, but it's the same as point one. We ought to be awed by the majesty of God. Because verse nine, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Just to make sure that we don't forget, God is the majestic one over all. Not you, not me, not self, goddess. J.I. Packer accurately said this. He said, we are living in times. We are living in eras. What a great phrase. Packer called it of God shrinking. It's so accurate. We are living in times of God shrinking. What what, what did he mean when Packer said that? He meant that in the public forum, in the the mind of the public, God is getting smaller and guess who's getting bigger? Man. We are living in times of God shrinking. And we're living in times of man enlarging. Thus, we have expressive individualism, expressive individualism. So what do we do? What do we do in this world of confusion and in, in this culture of chaos in and in the in the times of transgenderism that is just being unashamedly brought before our eyes? What do we do? As the church, we have to celebrate the beauty of God's creative design. We have to recommit to training our children in solid biblical truth. And we have to reach out in compassion to the lost. We have to reach out in compassion to the lost, to call them to repentance, to call them to faith. So, You see someone who's confused, someone who's caught up in this web of the lie of expressive individualism. What do they need? They need a big vision of God. They need a God-magnifying perspective of man. They need a renewed dignity of man the way the Bible presents it. Then that person needs to be called to respond and be awed by the unrivaled majesty of God. You and I don't need to have all the biological arguments and scientific arguments. We go to the psalm. We point them to the greatness of our God and what he has done. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 8. Thank you for the clarity that you give in the word. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us to try to figure it out and navigate on our own as we live in this perverse and crooked generation. But Lord, we have the beauty of your clear word that calls us to be in awe of who you are. Renew our awe of you this evening. In Jesus' name.